Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today I'm speaking to Dr. Gemma Purdy, adjunct fellow at Deakin University and along with Ancha Miskbak, editor of a new book on Australia-Indonesia relations called Linking People. Gemma, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. In Linking People, Gemma has written a chapter on the history of the Australian Scholarships Program for Indonesian students. In Gemma's words, this scholarships program spans the extent of Indonesia's modern history, having seen more than 18,000 Indonesians study in Australia over more than 60 years, with perhaps its most famous alumnus being Budiono, Vice President of Indonesia from 2009 to 2014. Gemma's research covers the impact of these scholarships right up to the present day, but I started by asking her about Australia's motivations in initiating the scholarships program back in the 1940s, in the midst of Indonesia's independence war with the Dutch, and years before Australia abandoned its own white Australia policy. Well, the uh, motivation for the first fellowships, as they were called, um, for Indonesians, um, came from a, a visit that um, Professor McMahon Ball made to Indonesia in 1945. It was called a goodwill mission. Um, and McMahon Ball returned with the message that we need to support the young Republicans. He was very impressed by them and by their struggle. Um, and as you know, in Australia, at that time, there was a great deal of support for the Republican movement in Indonesia, and I think that that was feeding into um, this desire for Australia to communicate and connect with the Republicans. The fellowships, when they were offered um, by our uh, Foreign Minister at the time, H.V. Ebert, were given, offered actually for the Republicans and also for people in the Dutch-occupied areas of Indonesia. So that was interesting. Um, but the responses that came were from the Republicans. Yes, please, we would like some of these fellowships. The idea behind them was that um, there was a call being made by the Indonesians themselves for more skills and te um, technical expertise, that they needed that, they were lacking in that, given that the Dutch were withdrawing or there was a struggle still going on. But for the, in for the uh, Republican movement, they could foresee mm -hmm. um, that there would be a gap in technical expertise. For the, in for the Australians... Um, as I said, McMahon Ball was very enamoured by the leaders of the Republican movement um, as people, mm. as much as anything, but there was just the spirit of it. I think that the Australians really bought into this sense of this spirit of um, independence and of, of, um, of their struggle, and so were keen to assist. Thanks. Of course, underlying all of that is the desire to create stability in our region. Three years would elapse between the visit of Professor McMahon Ball to Indonesia at the behest of Foreign Minister Evert, and the arrival of the first three Indonesian scholarship holders in 1948 and 1949. It's hard in today's terms to imagine the correspondence Gemma describes between the two governments, done by letter with long delays between replies, and at a time that the Republicans in Indonesia still faced assaults by the Dutch on their centre of government. I asked Gemma who these first three scholarship holders were and what they studied in Australia. Yeah, well, they were all professionals already, so it wasn't, uh, apart from, so I would say that they were kind of in placements, so they kind of got, you know, on-the-job exposure more than uh, doing training courses in this in these cases. Um, one of the was a woman called Yo Kunia Ningrat, who was uh, already uh, very well educated. She spoke English, and she was a teacher, and she became, uh, in the new 
government when it was and when Indonesia did get its independence became very senior in its um, Department of Education. Um, so Yo came out and from what I can tell about her uh, six months here, she toured around schools um, and met with teachers and had placements, that kind of thing. Um, she had very good English, so we see um, her interview quite a lot in the media. Um, then the other two were, one of them was an engineer, um, and then I'm not sure exactly where he was from, but he was uh, a qualified engineer, so again, some kind of on-the-job training placement. And then the fellow who came for 12 months did undertake some training. Um, he was from the, he was a radio broadcaster technician. The story of Yo, Kony and Ingrat and Co. is little known compared to the much larger and better known Colombo plan, which started in 1950. I asked Gemma how many Indonesians came to Australia under the Colombo plan and whether Australia's aims had remained the same. Yeah, well, the Colombo plan, as you know, was founded by um, the members of the Commonwealth Nations. Um, but it, it, it was including members of the Commonwealth Nations, but also others from outside. So Indonesia was also included in that. And it was about a region-wide approach. You know, we're looking at post-colonial uh, Southeast Asia and South Asia. And um, so the, the, the wealthier nations made a commitment to assist in the development of those nations. So it was very much about aid, but towards stability in these new emerging nations. Um, and so from the very beginning, um, there was a mutual benefit, which was, you know, I think it was stated pretty clearly and everybody knew that that was the case. So it was region-wide. And so we're, whilst these little package, if you can call them, of fellowships that were given to the Republicans in 49 were very much about Australia and Indonesia, the Colombo Plan's much broader than that. And so when it first started, most of the um, scholarships were, um, well, it was spread, but, you know, in the beginning, Malaysia was receiving um, the most, and then Indonesia were maybe third or fourth down the list um, amongst Sri Lanka and lots of other nations. So it wasn't the priority. Um, but over time, we see moments where, um, during the Colombo Plan period, Indonesia did become a focus, and there's one such moment in around 1955 when... Um, the Indonesians uh, received 220 scholarships in that one year um, for their students. And so we can kind of look around at what was the context for that and try mm. to understand what was going on between the governments. And there has been some scholarship, you know, that's kind of made the point that perhaps we were negotiating a trade deal at that time and that kind of thing. So you can see coming through that, you know, the national interest um, can dictate these things as well. Okay. But hopefully for mutual benefit, that's, that's the end of, it. In the, okay. end of the day, that's um, what they hope. Gemma estimates around 18,000 Indonesians have come to Australia over the past 65 years or so, both under the Colombo plan until it wound up in the early 1980s and as part of the ongoing Australian scholarships program since. As I was saying, in the early years of the Colombo plan, say approximately 50 Indonesians might come every year, um, and that was you know, comparable to um, people coming from other countries. Um, and then in more recent decades, around about 300, 350 scholarships have been given. Now, what has changed over time significantly is that those who were coming in the early Colombo plan years were all undergraduates. Mm. Um, they were either undertaking undergraduate study at tertiary level or some, or they were undertaking training in another tertiary institution, um, a TAFE equivalent, that kind of thing. 
Um, and as I said, some of them were only high school graduates, so they were very young, and this was their first degree. Now, and since the 1980s, it is exclusively scholarships for postgraduate study, um, mostly for, and, and mainly, well actually I would almost say all in the university sector, so not so much in other parts of the um, tertiary sector. Um, TAFEs, um, they really don't happen anymore. Mm. Um, so what you do see too is most people coming from master's degrees and a smaller proportion for PhDs. So they're already highly accomplished um, in their studies. Mm. Um, it's very competitive, it, you, <laughs> very different to the early days where it was almost luck that, that got you there. Um, now they're highly sought after and Australia is deemed to be, um, if not the best, then mm. in the top two mm. most desirable uh, scholarships awards. Oh, okay. I asked whether Australia had granted a comparable number of scholarships to any other country. No, no. Indonesia is by far the more. I mean, we can look to our second largest um, uh, recipient of, of these kinds of things, and that's Papua New Guinea, uh, mm -hmm. in terms of aid that we, that we give and scholarships. But uh, the numbers are far, far smaller. Mm -hmm. Obviously, their population is smaller, but Australia has, um, yeah, has, has given far more scholarships. And if you look at a country like Malaysia, which was getting a lot of early Colombo Plan scholarships, has not had the need mm. um, to receive so many, or Australia has deemed the need is as great um, mm. over time. So Indonesia has, yes, by far received the most scholarships. This raises the question, what accounts for so many scholarships being given to Indonesia, be it needs or strategic consideration? Yeah, well, this is an interesting question, and I think that, as I said about the Colombo Plan, um, when the countries of the Colombo Plan, involved in the Colombo Plan, you know, devised the idea, it was, it was on the premise that they would get something back, mm. that giving this aid would, would assist the stability of the region, that there would be good relations between this and these countries and Australia. And so I think that was laid out. But at the same time, I think the development agenda was foremost mm. and was prominent. Um, and as far as the, the work that... Um, uh, scholars like David Lowe and, Dan and David uh, Oakman have done on this. They point to, you know, the Australian public really buying into that as well with the mm. Colombo Plan. You know, it was very much, um, you know, a national project that, mm. you know, they were going to support. They're very happy to support um, the education of, of these, of these um, people involved in Colombo Plan. Over time, you can see that, you know, this has changed as the, you know, as, you know, aid the idea of aid for Australia has shifted. Mm. Um, and right up until now, um, as we can see, uh, AusAid merged with DFAT in the last 12 months. They've had to really rethink exactly mm. what they're offering when they offer scholarships. Um, it's no longer clearly in the aid basket because, you know, Auss you know as it was when it was AusAid. Mm. Um, so it's administered now... Um, as the Australia Awards mm. and um, very much packaged around their public diplomacy um, objectives um, rather than using the word aid. Australia's aims in providing scholarships have spanned aid and public diplomacy. I asked Gemma what she'd found Indonesians to have got out of their scholarships over the course of her interviews with more than 100 scholarship recipients. So to speak in general terms is difficult, um, but on the whole, of course, people um, express to us 
the huge uh, journey that they go on mm. when they come here. It's not just about what they learn and the skills mm. that they take home, but it's um, a change in worldview. Mm. Uh, one thing that we do know, and you can see over time this has changed, is uh, that Indonesians today, these ones that are coming to Australia who've already um, achieved high levels of education, are highly mobile people. Mm. They're real global citizens in that they have often studied elsewhere or they have mm. travelled uh, for their work and that kind of thing. So mm. as opposed to the Colombo Plan early awardees who mm. had never you know, ventured very far from home, mm. uh, you know, we're looking at a completely different cohort. But that said, um, Australia has its challenges and you know, mm. there's, there's a big difference in, you know, to living here than living uh, back in Indonesia where they come from. And so they, yeah, they are faced with a lot of uh, shock, you know, kind of jarring moments. Mm. Um, not just as students, but in their life here. Um, mm. But, you know, generally speaking, I think that, it, you know, the case can be made that the scholarships have an incredibly valuable impact mm. on the lives of the people who are awarded them. Not all Indonesians maintain enduring ties with Australia after studying here. As the number of Indonesians studying in large urban centres has increased, Gemma described a situation where Indonesians have had to step outside themselves more than in the past to form friendships with Australians, as the tendency can be to gravitate together. I asked her, though, whether you see enduring ties forming between the cohort of Indonesians who have studied in Australia. That is remarkable, actually. Mm. The, um, I think I, I say in my chapter and about the Australian mafia is the term that is used around in Indonesia, you know, you go into any government department or any university campus and you can pretty much find such people who have studied in Australia either as a scholarship recipient or, you know, a, a private student. But um, it's extremely strong, that bond. And uh, we interviewed the former Vice President Budiono and we went to his office and, you know, literally I think nearly almost all the people surrounding him had studied in Australian universities, you know. And Budiono himself. Yeah. And Budiono, obviously. Yeah, yeah, we were interviewing him because he's alumni and, you know, his best friend from that time when they studied at the University of Western Australia in the late 70s mm-hmm. is still his closest friend and advisor today. So, you know... That's that's quite a thing. Mm. Um, even though we're only talking about eighteen thousand, yeah. we do see them very prominent in in the elite. There were several Australian alumni in former President Udiano's cabinet. I asked Gemma whether this remained the case under President Jokowi. Not that I know of, no. Mm. But you know, it doesn't. You can. There's that thing. That's where we get to that difficult moment mm. where. Oh, okay, so if there's all these Australian alumni, why aren't they predisposed to Australia and, mm. and to our our interests? Mm. Um, and, you know, we can't have that expectation. Sure. That's the thing. It's just, you know, far and beyond. We're talking about individuals with their own interests. In Indonesia, you see a persistent suspicion of undue influence by foreigners, dating back at least to the days of Sukarno. I asked Gemma whether this had ever affected the scholarships program or the reception that Indonesians receive when they return home after studying in Australia? Well, like I said, um, the scholarships program to Indonesia has never stopped. So Mm. even we're talking during really difficult periods, like um, the East Timor issue and things like that, it has been unaffected. Mm. It would kind of take a little different research project, I think, to try to get into that um, understanding of how the bureaucrats were able to ride that and, Mm. and smooth that over. But, you know, the numbers speak for themselves in a way. 
I think that what you also see happening is that um, within um, you know the various branches of the embassy and within various branches of you know DFAT or AusAid or whatever it was responsible for scholarships there's a they're on the same page like there's mm. a really you know deep dedication to providing education opportunities um, for Indonesians on mm. both sides mm. so I think that's where you know you get that consistency rather you know not having to respond to all of the um, you know uh, bilateral ructions yeah. I think okay. yeah so over time not so much but on in terms of Australian about the foreigners and the hostility towards foreigners again I, you just don't see that mm. at all what you see and if you look at the history of Indonesia's you know education and of this constant trend of sending people overseas for study which mm -hmm. you know goes back a long long time pre-independence um, Indonesians being sent you know whether it be to the Middle East or to you know Holland for education they have kind of this pattern mm. and so it is highly desirable sure. and that may be an irony mm. you know that um, you know to get an education in America or Australia or Europe is sought after and you know in China now mm. um, so you know where does that fit in I'm not sure but what it does say is a lot about the state of it, of Indonesia's own tertiary education sector still mm. where uh, it is not deemed that you know you can get the same quality sure. of education and I mm. think that it is particularly with the scholarships the applicants for the scholarships you know, when they sign up to those scholarships, they know that it's an agreement between the Australian and Indonesian governments that they will return to Indonesia and contribute. Mm. So mm. there's still very much, you know, that sense. It's not about for them. It's not just for them. Mm. It's it's for the nation. And so, yeah. you know, that's that's good. And it does it does work out that way. Um, but in terms of or anything and applicants mm. for these kinds of scholarships not at all it's more competitive than you could it's okay. an industry okay. to prepare people for these for these scholarships applications mm. is an industry Australia made 40% funding cuts to its aid program to Indonesia in the latest budget I asked Gemma whether such aid cuts are a danger to the scholarships program yeah they are um, and in fact the Indonesian program was expanding mm. um, under the you know the Labor governments, it was expanding, um, and you know from the three hundred and fifty that I quoted, they had they had aspirations to something like six hundred mm. scholarships a year. Mm. They wanted to increase the number of PhDs and all of this kind of thing. And this is all I have to say negotiated with the Indonesian ministries. Mm. You know, so it's very you know they're collaborating a lot on mm. all of this, and um, the Indonesians are saying we want more, please give mm. us more, and Australia is responding and you know mm. in, in a positive way. So of course, with the huge aid cuts, that's no longer happening, and the three hundred and fifty is looking endangered as well. What mm. we do know, and was already a bit of a shift anyway within the program was to move away or to to reduce the number of um, long-term scholarships, so masters and PhDs, and to increase the number of short-term mm. uh, study programs. So they can be as little as you know two-week intensive something or six weeks or whatever, but in Australia. Short-term programs are cheaper but come with significant disadvantages. What we would argue, having done this project, is that 
you get far more value from long-term stay. Mm. Um, if you are going to get anywhere near achieving the kinds of things that our interviewees have achieved, that mm. is this in shift in worldview, mm. you know, a deep appreciation of Australian culture, um, this intellectual breakthrough that happens, mm. um, and friendship, mm. which may, means your connections will be enduring, then you mm. need to be here for more than six months. Yeah. Um, if, you know, the shorter to, in the, you know, for the short-term programs, they may lead on to somebody mm. coming for longer terms, but that would be the only advantage we would see in those, yeah. because we just, we know that, um, you know, unless there's kind of, you know, time mm. to, to fully experience a place, then it will be just a very superficial uh, vision, you know, view of Australia that they get, even, you know, mm. even with study involved. Based on her interviews with more than 100 scholarship recipients, I asked Gemma whether she felt Australia's scholarship program for Indonesia should continue and on what terms she would justify its continuance. We know that um, the people who return to Indonesia have an incredibly uh, sophisticated worldview, and I, uh, you know, I, I do think it is, you know, different from when they left. They privilege Australia in lots of ways, and if you want to think about it um, in the way that you know um, the current foreign minister likes to think about these things, and you want to look at well, where's the economic kind of leverage mm. um, from these things. You know, they privilege Australia. They are now middle class and upper middle class. So they too want their, their children to get the kind of education that they got. Mm. And they're now in positions to pay for that. Mm. Uh, their preferences are to send them here. So, you know, that's a good dividend. They want to come here for holidays. They want to buy Australian products. It is the case. So, mm. you know, there's, you can count direct economic benefits. But, you know, what's an intangible is you know the contribution that you've made to their life journey and to the sure. you know the way that they now live their lives the way they run their families you know one of the interesting things and someone may do a research project on this is gender equality and how mm -hmm. those women who've come to Australia on scholarship um, have you know that's shifted that whole paradigm and so they go back to Indonesia and there's a different uh, dynamic within their own families you know is there a benefit for Australia from that? Well, you know, it's impossible to really say. Mm. Um, but, you know, you can see that there is, uh, I think, you know, something about, if you want to think about Joseph Nye's idea of soft power, mm. which is where all this kind of comes in when you talk about public diplomacy, it's this idea of changing people's, um, influencing the way people make decisions and live their lives. Yeah. You know, if that, if that has come from being in Australia and being exposed to our culture, and you know, these are people who will, you know, go on to change um, things within families and communities and governments where they, you know, in Indonesia mm. today. Then, you know, slowly one by one, perhaps that will make a difference. But it takes time, and that's what Joseph Nye has always reminded us mm. that this kind of power uh, takes time and. Um, you know, with the short-termism of our politics in Australia, it, you know, it doesn't really register. Finally, I asked Gemma more narrowly whether the scholarships program impacts bilateral relations. For instance, whether disputes between Australia and Indonesia play out differently because of the program. Okay, Martin Natalagawa was a recipient of Australia Award scholarships, two of them, I believe. Mm. Studied in Australia for PhD and Masters, I think. Um, so he was foreign minister at the time of the spy scandal. Um, he, you know, 
whilst um, Australians were on death row, he was foreign minister. I think what you saw from Martin Elagawa was a determination to get the relationship right. Mm. He did not um, he did not shy away from being really frank and forthright with Australia, and and you could argue that that kind of plain speaking may mm. have been a result of him knowing Australia mm. well. I, I don't know, so. You know, it can have its pros and cons, perhaps. But mm. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's mm. fantastic. And I think that, you know, if the more Indonesians who um, understand Australian politics mm. and, you know, culture and all of that, um, then we will have more frank and open, you know, conversations about issues and values and that kind of thing. That was Dr Gemma Purdy, adjunct fellow at Deakin University, and author of a chapter on Australia's scholarships program for Indonesia in the new book she edits with Ancha Mispa called Linking People. We've put a link to the research project on scholarships Gemma has told us about on the page for this podcast on the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Visit Indonesia at Melbourne for the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive, or you can subscribe to Talking Indonesia via iTunes or Stitcher. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast.